His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called to us his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep, keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, they will be, rich, be richly provided for you in entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, well, good to be here with you all this morning. Um, it's been a, just a crazy past few days of this rain. It's just unreal. Our power, did anybody's power go out this, last night? Oh, okay. All right. Oh, Jane's did good. My daughter Jane. Okay, good. We, we live in the same house. That's wonderful. Thanks, Jane. Uh, well, uh, it's, yeah, it's good to be with you. My name is Reed. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and just, yeah, just a joy to celebrate with you all. Uh, so I asked this question, actually, in all of our services. Um, who here has broken an arm throughout, the, or, or, or just broken a bone, I guess, in your, in your lifetime? Okay, some of you, okay. I, I, am, I am convinced that um, if, if you haven't broken a bone, you haven't lived life to the fullest. I'm convinced of this. We all need to break bones and experience life. You live too cautiously. The, the best part, of the, I asked that question in the 8 o'clock service. A little kid over here raised his hand. He had a broken finger. It was perfect. I didn't pay him to do that. or didn't, I, He didn't do it like right on the spot or something. But, but I do. I, I think we all need to experience breaking a bone. And, and my daughter Jane actually would testify to this. Uh, when, when she was about three, she broke her arm uh, jumping on, on the bed in the middle of the night, actually. It was a really fun story. And so there she is. She's adorable. But what's crazy is that we didn't know that her arm was broken for like three days. That's how great of parents we are, you know? And, and so, but but the, the reason why is because Jane was just so tough. She didn't show any sign that she was hurt, you know? And like she was going around and opening doors and stuff. And it's like, this girl has this amazing threshold for pain. And so, but it was about three days later, she's putting her jacket on and she was kind of wincing in pain. And so Meg and I were like, Maybe we should take her to the doctor. I'm like, okay, fine. So we go. The doctor is twisting her arm around, and Jane is just like, hmm, that's fine. You know, how was your summer? You know, like she's just like not reacting. And, and so the doctor even says, it's probably not broken. Let's just do an x-ray to be safe. And sure enough, Jane broke her ulna and radius both like so cleanly and so severely that we had to sedate her. Not we, like Megan and I did it, but, but we, they had to sedate her to reset her bone. It was that intense. I was like, how did you not react to this? Like, Jane should be a spy. Like, she would never give up any information, you know? It's just like, <laughs> do your worst, you know? She's, she's tough. She's a tough cookie. And she loved it so much, she actually broke her arm a second time. Two years later, look at that. She loved it. So, Jane lives life to the full. I love you, Jane. So, anyway, um, the reason I share this is because when Jane broke her arm, we had no idea how severe the situation was. Like, she clearly hurt herself. But we had no idea that below the surface, she had injured herself to such a degree that if it were not addressed, she would have serious problems later in life. 
On the surface, it looked like things were okay, but there was a brokenness within her that if not addressed, would be serious and create serious problems later on. And I share this because in many ways, this is the reality for all of us as individuals and as a culture, that our world is broken and we know it, we all recognize it. No one's asking the question of if the world is broken, but we are all wondering why the world is broken. And, and similarly, kind of to Jane's arm, like we, we know that we're broken, we're not perfect, but you know, we deny that our arm is actually broken. Like, yeah, my arm hurts, but it's not broken. We're not as quick to own our own slice of the pie when it comes to the moral decay in our culture. We don't personally feel like we are complicit in the corruption that we see. As I said, we, we kind of say, yeah, my arm, is, it hurts, but it's not actually broken. And we all recognize the breakdown in our world, the moral decay that is in our homes, our communities, our society. We see it in the breakdown of, of the family with divorce rates. We, we see it in things like child neglect and the domestic abuse. We, we see it in, in the, the, the financial corruption, both in corporations and our government and our individual lives. We, we see it in things like mass incarceration, where we have more people incarcerated in the United States than any other country in the world by far, which shows not only our crime in our country, but in some ways the unjust and unhelpful system of rehabilitating people. We, we have such a widespread epidemic of pornography in our culture, so much so that certain states have declared it a public health crisis that is truly unweaving the fabric of our lives and of our relationships. None of us denies that our world is broken, but we all must wrestle with the question of why it is broken. And in preparing for this song, actually, it was interesting, I, I heard uh, a John Mayer's song, Waiting on the World to Change. It came on on the radio as I was preparing, and it's a song I'm familiar with, and maybe you've heard it too, but, but Mayer, he recognizes the brokenness in the world, but it's interesting in how he points his finger at the problem. It's outside of him. And in the opening line of the verse in the chorus, he says this, uh, now we see everything that's going wrong with the world and those who lead it. We just feel like we don't have the means to rise above and beat it, and so we keep waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. Now, now part of me, I, I can sympathize with that. Like, we see the brokenness in our world, and we feel helpless, we want to do something, but we just, we feel like it's beyond our capabilities. But in that mindset, what we have done is we have removed ourselves from the problem, and we just said, well, if we only had the ability to do something, we could fix it. And perhaps we need to hear the, the wise words of the theologian Michael Jackson. We need to look at the man in the mirror first and understand that we own some of that problem. And similarly, actually, in, in kind of contrast, uh, Jack Johnson, a songwriter, not a Christian, I think he has a better view of this problem in his song, Good People. He says this, we, he, he kind of asks the question, where did all the good people go? I keep changing channels. I don't see them on the TV shows. Where did all the good people go? We've got heaps and heaps of what we sow. Now, he's pointing out there is a problem, and he recognizes that we are the ones who are reaping what we are sowing. And so I think it is not, sorry, Mr. Mayor, it is not us waiting on the world to change. The world is waiting on us to change. The problem is not that our society is no longer virtuous. It's that our society and our churches are not producing virtuous people. That is the problem that I believe faces us. And so if we as the church are going to take seriously the work of personal transformation and cultural renewal 
for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, then we have to give serious attention and consideration to what theologians and philosophers are referred to as our vices and our virtues. Our vices and our virtues. Or in other words, we have to see that each and every one of us has habits of both life and death. That each and every one of us has habits of life and death that in one way or another are forming us and shaping us. Which is why over the next eight weeks, we are entering into this sermon series on vices and virtues. And what we're going to be doing with each of these weeks is looking at the different vices, these seven deadly sins that we've kind of commonly referred to them as, and see how these vices work in our lives, but then also look at its kind of virtuous counterparts, these virtues that we pursue in response. So each week we'll look at one of these seven deadly sins, you know, like wrath and sloth and lust and country music and merging without a blinker and decaf coffee, you know, major, major sins in our world. Um, no, in all seriousness, we, we'll take some time looking at all these vices. And so what we, I think we have a list of them here. We have envy, vainglory, sloth, greed, anger, gluttony, lust. This is exciting, you know? Really great. We're, we're trying to drive attendance down here at our church. That's how we're trying to solve our growth problem. Uh, but then, in response to the vices, we're going to be looking at these virtues that are not just the antithesis, but in many ways the remedy to these vices, kindness, humility, diligence, charity, patience, temperance, and chastity. But this morning what we're going to do is just do a, an overview of what do we mean by vices and virtues? What do these concepts mean? And we're going to be doing that by looking at uh, the Apostle Peter's teaching in, in his uh, second letter in chapter 1. And what I hope we see in our time together is, is really this, it's this simple idea that we have to run after virtue or be trampled by vice. That's plain and simple. We must together run after virtue or be trampled by vice. And so this morning, as we look at these habits of both life and death, I want us first to see that within all of, of all of us, there is this deadly drift into vice, this deadly drift into vice. But before we do that, I want to pray for our time as we, as we jump into God's word and hear his wisdom for us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives to reveal truth, to reveal brokenness, to reveal sin, not simply for the sake of bringing about guilt, Lord, but also for the, for the purpose of, of showing us how we have lived out of line with, with your design of life. Lord, would you show us our vices and would you compel us to live virtuous lives that reflect your divine nature for the good of all people and the glory of your name. Would you do that in this time for our good? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, the deadly drift into vice. Now, some of us might be thinking, okay, why are we calling it vices? You know, seven deadly sins is what I'm usually kind of familiar with. We've heard that phrase before. And, and in many ways, to call the vices sins, it's a little bit of a misnomer. Because, I mean, we, when we look at that list, you know, of envy, sloth, wrath, I mean, like, I mean, that, that doesn't seem like all that offensive. Like, really, those are the worst sins? Like, I committed two-thirds of those on the way to church this morning, you know? Like, that's, not, that's the worst you've got? And what we have to understand is that the vices are not necessarily the worst things that we do, but they are these fundamental habits that form and lead us to have desires and decisions that create the problems we see in our world. It is not that they are the worst things in the world, but rather these vices are incubators, if you will, that kind of serve to create the environment where desires and decisions lead to the corruption we see in our lives and in our society. 
And so in, in her phenomenal book, I highly recommend this book to you, Glittering Vices. Uh, you'll probably hear from Rebecca DeYoung quite a bit, uh, but Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, describes the vices in this way. She said, the vices are corruptive and destructive habits. They undermine both our goodness of character and our living and acting well. The vices have a corrosive effect on our lives. They eat away at our ability to see things clearly, appreciate things as we ought, live in healthy relationships with others, and refrain from self-destructive patterns of behavior. And so, so the way we need to think about the vices is, is in this way. It's one thing to confess the sin of, for example, viewing pornography. But it's another thing to recognize that, that you have a habit of lust that, that creates this insatiable desire for something. And the desire may be good. Sex is a good thing. But when the desire becomes so inappropriate and cranked up to 11, so to speak, we begin to desire this thing in unhealthy ways. And it leads to decisions that actually not only pre- create problems, but undermines our own happiness. The vices are more than just sins we commit. They are habits, they are rhythms, they are ruts that we get into that lead to the sins that we commit. Pornography is a symptom of a far greater problem of the vice, the habit of lust that is in, within all of us in varying degrees. These habits then produce a series of desires and decisions that wreak havoc in our lives and in our world. And even if the thing that we desire is good, What our vices do is, as I said, it cranks that desire up to 11, and we love and pursue and desire and long for this thing more than what we ought to. And then the inappropriate pursuit of these things is what bleeds out into our world, causing the corruption that we see, which is why Peter brilliantly, this this fisherman observes and very accurately says in verse 4, the corruption that is in the world, why? because of sinful desire. Peter is recognizing the distinction between the sins we commit and the deep-seated desires and habits that lead to that. So you see, our, our personal and individual habits and decisions and desires, they are not victimless crimes. It is so naive for us to think that, that our habits and decisions and what we do behind closed doors only impacts me. All of what we do impacts our relationships. Our decisions and habits and desires truly do bleed out into our relationships and community. And the interesting thing, too, is that these these habits, they're not just built in within us. They're not just hardwired. They're not just out of the box, so to speak, but they are automatic because you don't have to train or teach someone to have a vice. You don't have to train or teach someone to be greedy or to be envious or, or to be lustful. That happens out of the box, but you do have to teach and train and equip someone to be virtuous. We all know this, and if you, if you deny me, just spend some time with some three-year-olds that you understand, like, it's built into us, and we never grow past that. We all still need the work of identifying our vices, not drifting into them, because that is the natural posture we have. If we drift, we drift towards vice, not virtue, which is why one author said that, that anybody, anybody can develop a vice. All you have to do is go into neutral. That's the way we naturally drift. You don't drift towards virtue. You and I drift towards vice. 
but this doesn't jive with kind of our progressive way of thinking. You know, like, no, we're, we've progressed past this idea of sin, and I mean, that's an antiquated concept. That's not really something that's relevant today. We're not sinners. We're, we just have kind of uh, psychological dissonance within us. And I, I'm not bashing or, or dismissing or diminishing uh, the work of, of psychology and psychiatry and counseling and therapy by, by no means. But we have gotten to the point where we have just justified and explained away sin where we're no longer sinners, our, our, our misbehavior is, is not something that's truly who I am. Like, that wasn't me. That was just something else. That was a heat of the moment passion that, acted, that I acted out upon. But the very interesting thing is that in our denial and refusal to see ourselves as sinners, we're actually preventing ourselves from progressing to be the people we know we want to be and long to be. Which is why David Brooks, he's, he's a New York Times columnist, not a Christian, in his book, Road to Character, what he says is one of the reasons why there's such a moral decay in our world, in our schools and communities and our places of work, the reason why is because we have ignored and neglected the word and the concept of sin. Brooks says this, he says, when you lose awareness of sin and start thinking that deep down human beings are pretty wonderful, you lose the struggle of character building. Building character is not like being better than someone else at a career. It's conquering your own weakness. But you won't make that effort if you lose a sense of what your weakness is, and here's the kicker, and where it comes from. Again, he's not a Christian, and he's identifying the fact that if we ignore, suppress, deny the reality of our sin, that there is a problem within us, we are not only prolonging the problem, but we are creating more problems for those around us. What Brooks is saying here is that we are good at pointing out our symptoms, but we are very bad at identifying the root problem. So let me, let me illustrate it this way. When you think of a tree, you know, you see a tree, you see the fruit and the foliage on the tree, but the, 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 the quality of the fruit and the health and vibrancy of, of the leaves is dependent upon what? The roots. The roots are what determine what comes out of the tree. And so when we think about this illustration, connecting it to our sins and to our vices, the sins are the fruit of the tree. The vices are the roots that lead to those sins in our lives. And so the rancid apple of, of wishing ill and delighting in, in the, the failure of others, that comes from the root of envy. But if we only address the fruit of, man, I really should not wish ill upon people, I should not delight in their failures, we are not getting to the root issue. We must see that there is a vice that is far greater than just the fruit that it produces. We have to do more than simply confess our sins, confess our fruit, if you will, the rancid fruit of our tree. We must do the hard work of searching for and identifying and naming and labeling our vices our habits of death that lead to these sins that we see in our world. Because there, there's a difference between confessing and admitting that you're a sinner who sins and, and, and recognizing you have a vice that leads to that. It, it would be like saying, when, when, when we just confess that we're sinners and that we have sinned, it's like saying, I'm sick and I have a runny nose. Now, that's true. And while copious amounts of NyQuil will help you, there's a tipping point there, but you know, but like they're, they're, it can help you. What you need more than NyQuil and Kleenex is to identify what were the circumstances and situations that got you sick in the first place. That is the distinction between vice and sin. When we just treat our symptoms with NyQuil and Kleenex, that helps. 
But more importantly, he's got to find out, man, who did I drink after? You know, what, what situation was I in that got me to this point of being sick? Knowing our vices and knowing these habits of death is important because what it allows us to do is it allows us to repent of specific sins specifically. See, when we just look at sins as the fruit of the tree, we are failing to be people who repent of specific sins specifically. Let, let, me, let me share this story. My daughter Pearl, who's four, she has a problem of not eating all of her dinner. And because of that, in our home, the rule is you don't get to eat dessert. I know, I'm cruel, aren't I? So our two oldest daughters typically eat their dinner. And so they get dessert. And so one night, Lula and Jane were eating their dessert, and Pearl is sitting across from them, just kind of sulking, and she just goes, I don't get to eat dessert. I'm sorry, myself. <laughs> she, like, like I, was, I was expecting her to start blaming me, like, you're, you're keeping me from dessert, you're keeping me from this. But she realized in this moment, the only person that she has to blame is herself, that's Pearl. That's my Kurt Cobain grunge rock daughter there. Uh, and so, so she recognized, I mean, I, I thought it was really powerful. And I told her this. I said, Pearl, I love that you realize that the only person here to blame for you not eating dessert is you. And she's apologizing to herself for failing to give herself dessert. I was just, I, that's lovely. That's lovely. I still didn't give her dessert, but, um, <laughs> but I, I, I say this because until we understand the distinction between vices and sins, we won't be able to not, we will, we will fail to be able to repent properly and address the root issue. So let me, let me offer a few questions for us to consider as we think about these vices. So the first question is this, are you and I aware that we don't just have vices, but that our vices have us? That we don't just simply have bad habits, we don't just simply have habits that produce these sins, but these habits truly have us. And that if we ignore them and, and neglect them and deny them, we're putting ourselves in a more precarious and dangerous place. You see, it's dangerous to be an alcoholic for you and for other people. But do you know what's more dangerous than that? Is denying that you're an alcoholic. And so we have to see that we not only have vices, but that our vices have us. And so do we believe that we have habits that are in many ways killing us in more ways than one? Secondly, what are the root vices and habits in your life that have produced the spoiled fruit of sin? What are the root vices and habits in your life that have produced the spoiled fruit of sin? We, we can't just simply confess our sin of, of our blown temper. Don't, I mean, we can't just say, oh, I blew my temper, I got angry. That's important and we need to recognize that. But we, we tend to not say, I'm an angry person. We just say, no, that was, that was a heat of, of passion. I, that wasn't me. That was just something else. It was an outlier. We have to be willing to identify that it's not just something that we do, but there is something about who we are that brings about these sins that destroy us. And so we have to do the hard work of exploring our habits of death, of our desires and decisions that are at play in our life. You see, it's not enough to just simply say, like, if you fall off a cliff, it's not enough to say, oh, man, why did I fall off the cliff? Or, or how, do I, how do I stop from falling off the cliff? Like, man, bro, you need to find out, like, why are you hanging around cliffs in the first place? You know, you look back away from that edge. Why are you spending time at the Grand Canyon so close to the edge? That, the point is not trying to figure out how to stop falling off cliffs. The point is to figure out why am I even on a cliff in the first place? That is the question we should be asking. And then thirdly, are you repenting of your sins as well as your vices? 
Are you repenting of the fruit, the, the, the sins that we see, but also are you repenting of the vices, the desires and the habits, the situations that you have created that have led to these decisions bleeding out into our world? In other words, are you repenting of specific sins specifically? Are you, in the words of my daughter Pearl, saying, I'm sorry myself, I'm the only one to blame for this? Recognizing our habits of death is essential if we are going to be people who pursue habits of life. And because of this, it shouldn't be a surprise that that if we run after virtue, we will find ourselves avoiding being trampled by vice. So as we turn, as we shift from vices to virtues now, I want us to see that the first step in pursuing virtue is fleeing vice. So I want us to to look at virtue here, but but let me say something really clearly, is that if you're looking for the the three steps, the eight tips, the nine principles of how to be a virtuous person, you're going to be sorely disappointed in this sermon. Maybe more so than how you normally are disappointed in my sermons, but but I hope that you see that it's not about what, what are the steps, what is the quick fix, how do I apply this to my life? I have to be very clear in letting you know that the way in which we grow in virtue is through difficult training. There's no way around it. That if we want to be virtuous people, it comes through the pathway of difficult training. When it comes to the conversation of what is needed to try to remedy our moral problem in the world, there's typically kind of two extreme views in, in, in culture. There's either the one view that says we need more rules and guidelines and laws and structures to make sure and ensure people are good. Now, laws are good, rules are good, standards are good, that's, that's great, but, but does that actually get to the root issue? Do, do, do laws and rules and commands actually foster a changed heart? On the other side, you have this other extreme view that's like, no, we don't need more rules and laws, we need to follow our hearts. We need to, to, to desi- choose what we want and long for and believe in and go after that with authenticity. And if we're honest with ourselves, like there, there's a hollowness to both of those extremes because we all know rule followers who are total jerks and we all know people who are honest and following their heart who are incredibly immoral. There must be a third way in determining the life of virtue. And so we don't need a pathway of more rules and we don't need to follow our own hearts. We need something else. And what I believe that other thing is, is that we need character. We need to be people of character whose character is forged by running after virtue. In writing on this, on this subject of virtue and character, uh, N.T. Wright is a New Testament scholar, brilliant guy. Um, he says this in describing character and virtue. He says, character will generate the sort of behavior that rules might have pointed toward but which a rule-keeping mentality can never achieve. And it will produce the sort of life which will in fact be true to itself, though the self to which it will at last be true is the redeemed self, not the merely discovered self of popular thought. The name for this way of being human, this kind of transformation of character, is virtue. It's virtue, not mere rule-following, not mere following your heart and being true to thine self. What we need is virtue, and we must run after virtue, or we will find ourselves being trampled by our vice. And this is exactly what Peter had in mind. Peter knew what he was talking about when he was writing this letter. 
He understood the, the connection between virtue and the Christian life. But, but some of us might, might be thinking, but, but how do we understand this relationship? Because if God has loved us and forgiven us, and that if we are saved by grace through faith, then what's the point of all this virtue talk? Aren't you just using a lot of kind of theological mumbo-jumbo, this kind of philosophical jujitsu move to really preach a message that's just Christianity is be good? Isn't that what I'm doing here? And what we have to understand is that there is not a disconnect, there is not a mutual exclusivity between the gospel of grace and the pursuit of virtue. And Peter understands this. And he doesn't give some kind of exception to this. He doesn't try to mince words. He says, no, look, the pursuit of virtue is hard, hard work. That's why he says in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. You see, this idea of if we just have faith, we will automatically become better people, that concept is not found in the scriptures. Instead, we see this this message that, that we must put effort into, work towards virtue, growing in Christ's likeness. It doesn't just happen automatically. Do you want to be a generous and charitable person? You don't become a generous person by just throwing a lot of money away to someone just randomly. We grow in generosity just like we grow in our vices through habit, through practice. The virtues are forged in us through many small, intentional, deliberate, and what are seemingly insignificant decisions in seemingly insignificant moments that make us the people that God is calling us to be. If we, if we want to be generous in big things in life, it starts in being a generous tipper, for example. Like, if we cannot be generous in these small things in life, we will fail to be generous in these larger areas. If we cannot pursue purity in small areas in life, we will fail to be pure and, and flee temptation when it is of the utmost importance. We must practice virtue in the small things if we are to be the kind of people that we need to be, or more importantly, who other people need us to be as virtuous people. Again, N.T. Wright says this really well. I think this is a really helpful picture. He says, virtue in this strict sense is what happens when someone has made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something which is good and right, but which doesn't come naturally. And then, and only then, and then on the thousand and first time, when it really matters, they find that they do what's required automatically, as we say. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, in, in the civil rights movement, uh, one of the, the prominent uh, forms of peaceful protest was in the form of what was called a sit-in. And in the sit-ins, basically you would have these young black men and women, and sometimes accompanied by some of their white supporting friends, who would go into diners and establishments that had clear distinctions of white and colored locations. And they would sit in the white section, clearly in violation of the segregation laws in our country. And they would sit, and they would say, we deserve to be here. They would peacefully sit and what would happen, people would come in, and they would mock them and accost them. They would, they would attack them. They would throw racial slurs at them, things that you would never want to say to your worst enemy. And these people, they would sit, and as you can see how they're treated, I mean, this is a, the tamest picture I could put up here in what took place in the sit-ins. Do you know how they pre- prepared for these moments? My, my wife and I, last night, we were watching the movie The Butler, 
And I, I, had to, I didn't even know, uh, I wasn't even aware of this movie and what it was about, but, but there's a scene where they show how these peaceful protesters prepared. They would gather as friends and create simulation sit-ins. Their best friends would, would pretend to be these, these accusers, and they would look at their friends in the eyes and call them these racial slurs and shake them and push them and assault them and do far worse things to them. Why? So that as they prepared off the spot, they would be ready to respond virtuously on the spot. The reason I share that is because we have to see if we want to grow in virtue, if we want to run after it so that we're not trampled by vice, we have to be people who are training for it off the spot so that we're ready to respond and react virtuously on the spot. There is no way of getting around the fact that to grow in virtue requires difficult training. When we pursue the difficult training for virtue, we will not only find ourselves growing more and more like Christ, but we will also find ourselves diminishing and, and, and weakening the vices within us. Because again, the virtues are not just the opposite of vice, they are the remedy to vice. Some of you, if you're, if you're lawn people, I'm not, I have a terrible lawn, and if you want to get rid of weeds in your yard, it's not just through uh, Roundup. I've learned. You don't just spray that on your yard, I've found out. And you don't just dig up weeds. It's not just through chemicals. Those help. But the best way to eliminate weeds in your yard is to have a thick, lustrous, healthy yard. It's to have healthy grass so that weeds can't even grow. Do you want to destroy these vices that are destroying you? Then grow and pursue virtue that reflects the divine nature of the one who has rescued us. Our pursuit of the virtues is not just so that we might be better people, but so that we might put to death that which is putting us to death. This is why we must run after virtue. And so a couple questions for us to consider with this as we, as we think about how we are training for virtue, how we are pursuing virtue. The first question is this, are you living to build a moral resume or are you living to grow in Christ-like virtue? Do you genuinely want to be like Jesus as you train and develop, as you pursue virtue? Are you doing so because you want to be like Jesus? Or are you doing it so that you might have a veneer of this kind of religious behavioralism that other people see? What is your pursuit? What is my motive in my pursuit of the virtues? Secondly, what habits are you and I forming to cultivate this kind of virtuous life? What are we doing off the spot, so to speak, to prepare for those moments on the spot? If I don't want to be the kind of person who, who blows up and is so angry with, with my wife and my kids, then I need to learn patience in these small things in life. You know, I mean, like, I, I need to be willing to, to, to sit in the long line at the grocery store to practice patience. I mean, we, how are we doing the training off the spot to prepare ourselves when we are on the spot? What habits are you forming to cultivate this kind of virtuous life? And then thirdly, are you running after virtue in order to run after Christ? Are you running after virtue in order to run after Christ? Because the danger here is that I don't want us to just erode virtue away and just erode it down to just simple behavioralism. We have to see that the pursuit of virtue is not just, well, I guess I ought to do this because I'm a Christian, or I guess I ought to do this so that we have a more civil society, but that our pursuit of the virtues, our running after virtue is indeed a running after Christ. 
I want us to make sure we see that connection because some of us are probably here sitting and thinking, just like I was as I approached this text and approached this sermon, is that isn't this just a fancy philosophical way of saying that be good and God will love you? That to be a Christian means to be a good civil person? How do we get around this? How do we see this connection? And while I do strongly believe that we must run after virtue, and that if we don't, we will be trampled by our vices, I absolutely agree. I totally believe in that. We would be remiss if we failed to see that what it is that is equipping us and causing us to run after virtue is Christ himself. If we fail to see the, 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 the locomotive, the engine and the fuel that is pushing us to, to virtue, the, the, one, the thing that is pushing us to hear Peter's words that says, make every effort, if we fail to see the motivation behind that, we will erode Christ-like virtue down to just being good for goodness sakes. Yes, Peter says in verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Peter is calling us to grow in virtue, to make every effort, but interwoven within his words of pursuing virtue, we also find the empowering gift that gets us there. The empowering gift that gets us there. Peter opens up his letter by saying that those whom he is writing to, those whom he is writing to, they are those who have come to faith in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the completed work of Christ alone. Look, look at verse 1, the verses we tend to skip when we're reading the Bible, those greetings. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter's readers have been declared righteous by the judge of all creation, and they are declared righteous before Peter gives them this command to make every effort to add virtue to your faith. It is then that Peter tells them that because of their standing with God in righteousness, that they have also graciously received what they need to grow in Christ-like virtue. He has, God has supplied them through the power of the Holy Spirit everything they need. Look, that's what he says in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God makes the demands that we grow in virtue, but he also provides the resources necessary to grow in virtue. And this power that, that God has given to us to grow in virtue is not in response to some moral down payment we've already made. It's not to, to given as a way to say, well, maybe they've, maybe they've shown some evidence that they're, they're following after me, now I will empower them. It is given after the fact that they have been declared righteous. But then the real kicker, the true empowering gift that Peter's readers were compelled by, the, 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 the true empowering gift that, that followers of Jesus have been compelled by for years, and a true empowering gift that compels you and I to pursue virtue is none other than, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice how Peter, I mean, look what Peter does in verse 9. He anchors, what is the motivation, what's the locomotive, what is the fuel behind making every effort to add virtue to our faith? Peter anchors it in the completed work of Christ. In verse 9, for whoever lacks these virtues, whoever lacks these qualities, is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. 
Peter's closely tying our understanding, our delight, and our faith in the gospel. He is tying that to our effort to grow in virtue. That the converse of what Peter is saying here is that when we know the depths of our forgiveness, when we see what Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection for us, that is what compels us to grow in virtue. It is not a way to earn God's favor. It is not a way to pay him back. It is a response in light of what he has done. If we don't, we are showing we have completely forgotten the depth of our sins that have been fully forgiven. When we see that Christ has saved us from the trampling power of our vices and of our sins by being trampled for us, that is the fuel for our pursuit of virtue. That is what makes us want to be like Christ. You see, we, we tend to want to naturally reflect and be like those, to mimic and emulate those that we admire and love. Why? Not so that they might love us more, but because they love us. And because we delight in them, we reflect their nature. It's why Martin Luther said that, that, that it is not imitation that makes sons and daughters, but it is our sonship that makes us imitators of Christ. This is our motivation for pursuing virtue. And so as we seek to run after virtue, in order that we might avoid being trampled by vice, may we do so knowing that we will become more and more like the one who was trampled for us, who suffered and died in our place. May that truth of Christ's death on our behalf be the fuel for our adding virtue to our faith. Because in the end, what we will find is that running after virtue truly is running after Christ. And so because that is the truth, let us then make every effort to run after virtue and let us do so. Let us run well and let us run together, aiming to reflect the one who was trampled on our behalf so that we might be able to run after him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pause to ask that you would do your work in revealing in our hearts our habits of death. Lord, would you show us where we have formed rhythms and ruts in our life that, that have produced problems not only for us individually, but, but for us collectively. And Lord, would you give us the, the desire and the strength and the power that you have promised that you will provide. Would you give us that power to destroy these vices? And may we do so, Lord, by growing in virtue, in Christ-like virtue that reflects your divine nature. Lord, would you equip us to do this work that we might, through your Holy Spirit, bring the kingdom, reflecting your nature in this world for those that need it, and we need it as well. Lord, would you do this work for our good and for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of him who has called you by his own glory and goodness. He's given us everything we need for a virtuous life. So go in peace.